Consumer Focus with Martin Newman. Hello and welcome to Consumer Focus, bringing you expert advice and opinions on customer service and the Great British High Street. My name is Martin Newman and I've worked in commerce for over 35 years. I am dedicated to championing the consumer and helping businesses to develop the best strategies for their customers. To that end, I am joined today by Mike Barry, the man who ran Plan A, Marks & Spencer's sustainability programme. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Martin, a pleasure. <laughs> Great to have you here. Tell me something. How did you get involved in social responsibility in the first place? Because you have been in it forever, as far as I can tell. Uh, and it, you know, it's a long, long story, but in, in abbreviated form. Back in the 1980s, boy growing up in Bradford in Sheffield University, and I got a lot of sense of social injustice. I was seeing places shut down in Bradford and, and Sheffield, people losing their jobs. And uh -huh. I, I think that drove me into it first. Did a chemistry degree. My first job was then in environment. So uh -huh. I was an environmental consultant, helping setting standards to protect watercourses. So I had that sense of social justice meets environmental science. Right. Did that through the 90s. The M&S job came up in 2000. Joined a business that had done a lot of last previous 100 years in the world of trust, yeah. but wanted to reinvent it for the 21st century. And I was yeah. at the heart of that with a lot of other good people taking it forward. Yeah. So you, you, I mean, were you the instigator of that or were you brought in specifically to head up Plan A, if you know what I mean? Was it already something they kicked off or...? There was no Plan A back in 2000. Yeah. So I came in initially to put ISO 14001 in environmental right. standards for shops right. uh, in, in place in the M&S's 1,000 stores. And we soon recognised that the true impact of a retailer is actually the products that it sells. Yeah. How they're produced back on the farms, the factories, how they're used by the consumer and ultimately disposed of in the packaging as well. Yeah. So we shifted from a focus on just on shops to thinking about the 3 billion items that M&S sold every year. Mm. Um, so by 2006, when Stuart Rose had come in, he fought off Philip Green in the takeover battle, the, the very infamous, very famous yes. one. Um, and Stuart turned around to me and said, Mike, I want us to make us the best retailer on the planet for corporate responsibility. What do we do? Yeah. You've got 100 days to work it out, son. If you don't, don't work it out in Stuart's inimitable way, you're looking for a new job. Yeah. And I've missed out all the Anglo-Saxon that went with that little <laughs> missive. But Stuart was brilliant, really inspiring leader. And he turned around to a small bun bunch of us, five mm. or six of us that worked really hard of 17 versions of Plan A drafted in 100 days before we launched it in early 2007. Fascinating. And what do you do now? Because it's not that long since you left M&S, is it? Yeah, I did 19 years at M&S. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got you, a great thing about the podcast, you can't see all the grey hair on my head. Um, <laughs> well, so, we're, we're both guilty of that. Yeah, uh, well, give me, me grey hair, but love my time at M&S. Yeah. And it was never easy. You know, it's a business go through a lot of, lot of change, sure, just sure. as the, the wider retail sector is. But I always worked with people who cared passionately about doing the right thing, from the food business to the clothing business, marketing, PR, um, running shops, running logistics. Damn good people, world-class oh. experts in what they do. And working with them to integrate planning into everything that M&S did was yeah. a real inspiration, a real privilege. After 19 years, I've come out, and now deliberately the next 12 months, I'm just working with lots of different parts of the economy. Yeah. Big business, startups, NGOs. Yeah. And almost just relearning my job. I spent 19 years helping M&S be less bad. The next decade is dramatically different. How do you make fundamentally better uh, products for the consumer? Yeah. Again, the focus on the, on, on the consumer at the heart of the next decade. And over the last few months, I've listened to over 250 people about what they think the next decade means for responsible business. It's been mm. fascinating. Very good. Well, I have no doubt whatsoever that's going to be a very exciting journey for you. And the, the timing certainly feels perfect in relation to you know, the shift in consumer mindset, this kind of move into conscious consumption and away from the era of pure consumerism. Um, 
M&S with Plan A were, were really ahead of the game. And to my mind, or as far as I can recall, the first large retailer to embrace CSR, and we'll come back to the term CSR in a second. Um, how far are they in that journey? I guess it's a journey that never really ends, but where are they, you know, in a sort of A to B or zero to 100%? How far down that path are they? Well, the answer is very simple, 20%. And, and that's right. not to denigrate M&S. M&S remains a world leader in retail and sustainability. But it shows how much more still needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And I'll just sort of explain that in five bullet points. Sure. You start with a firm foundation. What Plan A was back in 2007 was 100 commitments over five years, time-bound, very public about what we're going to do to get on top of environment in terms of packaging, in terms of waste, in terms of energy use, fish sourcing, cotton sourcing, wood sourcing, you name it, it was all in there. That's where you start. Mm -hmm. Now, looking back, that was the beginning. At the time, it seemed like everything. Mm -hmm. The second phase was then deep integration into the business. So every moving part of M&S was doing plan A as part of the job. Two small examples. One, every food factory, 600 food factories, was on a bronze, silver, gold ladder to become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. In doing that, they were becoming more profitable, cutting their waste, the resource use, improving productivity. So great business benefit in terms of what they're doing. Second example, those three billion items I talked about, a piece of food or clothing. Every single one of them by 2020, where we are now, back in 2010, we said we had to have a plan, a story to tell. So we're going to create a niche corner of the store called Ethical and then everything else. Everything was inbound. Mm-hmm. So that was the second phase, that deep integration. Mm-hmm. The third phase then was very much about building partnership. Humbly saying that little old M&S can't solve the world's problems on its own. It had to work with Tesco's and Sainsbury's, with Waitrose, with Nestle, Unilever, Coke, Pepsi to drive change. A lot of that, the Consumer Goods Forum, working together on things like palm oil sourcing, soya sourcing, human rights. So that's the third phase, build those partnerships to drive mm-hmm. systems changes. The fourth thing, and you know, I know it's a great preoccupation of yours, Martin, involve the customer. Mm-hmm. How do you get 32 million M&S customers thinking and acting differently? And again, mm-hmm. we'll talk about things like Plant Kitchen, MS's vegan range a little bit, but that's at the heart of wh- wh- what we need to do next. Mm. And the fifth thing and the final thing is linked to that, disruptive new business models. Mm. This is not about selling what you used to sell, but in a little less of a bad way. Mm. This is a profound shift, and we've already seen it in a number of sectors. The power shift from coal to wind, yep. cars going from diesel to electric, the meat industry going plant-based, what do we do with plastics, yep. and, 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 and. And that's why I say MS has done 20% of the journey. Because all that disruptive business model part of it needs to come next. Yeah. But I'm, I'm confident that M&S has got the capability of doing that. Well, it sounds like they've got a good foundation on, on which to build. Tell me something. I mean, it's, it may seem a small thing to lots of people, but, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a fan of the term corporate social responsibility. Um, for I suppose for the obvious reason that, to my mind, it puts the word corporate at the start of it. And, and I, I worry that in too many instances, it'd be for, not... Clearly, it wasn't the case with you and M&S, but in many organisations, when you call it CSR, it becomes a tick box exercise and it becomes something that the board feel they can sort of, from a governance point of view, we've done that, we can move on, um, when arguably, you know, to your point, it's really got to be a completely integrated part of the business. Is it the right term? Uh, great, great question. And I, I started off as head of corporate responsibility at M&S. Yeah. That's what, what it was when we launched Plan A. Yeah. By the time I'd left, I was director of sustainable business right. because that's what it's shifting to do. It's a profound yeah. shift in how you do business in a way that's great for shareholders and the customer yep. economically, but great for society and the planet as well. And it's finding yeah. that and optimizing that balance where you'll win. But I think what your question does is leads into a much more serious point as well, which is about this is about your core business model and changing it. This is not about making the existing approach to just shifting in a linear way, make things, sell them, use them and throw them away. 
That's the old approach. That was corporate responsibility, mm -hmm. softening in the rough edges of that business model. Now what we're talking about is a profound shift, as we just said, you know, diesel to electric, for example, mm -hmm. meat to plant-based. A radical shift, not just in terms of what you sell, but how you sell it. Mm -hmm. The shift from product to service, yeah. from uh, once through to closed loops, bringing stuff back. Yeah. And that's not just for social environmental reasons. It's economic. If you can bring the consumer back in a closed loop to totally. you, great for the environment and great for you economically yeah, as well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, a great opportunity. You're, you're absolutely right. That whole kind of circular economy, if retailers can crack that, um, they can they can also crack customer lifetime value, which is something they've been wrestling with for a long time. Um, what's the future for social responsibility? I mean, it feels like a bit like M&S. We're just at the start, really, aren't we? Yeah, and, and I think what we're going to see in the next decade, and I'll, I'll be very simplistic about mm. this, half of today's incumbent companies are not going to be around in a decade. Now, some of that will be driven by the natural attrition of economic disruption. Yeah. It happened in the past. It'll always happen. It's happening quicker now. We, yeah. we can see that. But right in the middle of it as well will be sustainability disruption. And again, mm. I've given the examples, meat to plant, um, diesel to electric, etc. Yeah. Every industrial sector on the planet is going to go through a profound sustainability disruption. I think next comes fashion, then tourism, mass tourism, then finance. So every sector has got to find a profoundly different way of satisfying customer need in the future. Mm. I look at the car industry now, you know, electric has been hovering on the edge of, of the car industry for a decade. Mm. No one had the courage to plunge and chase it hard. Everybody looked at Tesla and laughed and said, peripheral, it's going to yeah, fail. absolutely. Now you look at Musk and think he's valued three times more than some of the biggest car companies in the yeah, world. Yeah, he's the, big, the most valuable car company in the world now. And you start to think, you know, he's still a high-risk entrepreneur, is Elon. What he's doing, uh, there's lots of reasons why it might fail. Yeah. But suddenly it's starting to look, every car company in the world is scrabbling to keep up with him. Yeah. He's setting the agenda. Yeah. Those incumbent boardrooms had an opportunity five years ago to say, we will manage the transition on our own terms, yeah. but we need to start now. Yeah. Instead, they're on the back foot and half a mark going to make him. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think, you know, I think you could look across any consumer sector and apply the same, you know, the same logic. You know, I, I've, sat in a, I've sat in a few boards and, and I know that social responsibility, whilst it's something that I alluded to earlier, it's, it's on the agenda, but it tends to get the can gets kicked down the road mm. because the the sense is it's not something we need to worry about today, whereas clearly it is. And I think the most interesting thing is, you know, if you look at obviously the Greta Thunberg effect and Extinction Rebellion and, and other, you know, climate activists have really raised the bar, raised the awareness and the visibility to a point now where it really feels like it's taking hold. I suppose the one thing I'd like to get your perspective on from a consumer perspective is because there's always a there's always this kind of disconnect to some extent between what consumers say and what consumers do. So everyone, you know, everyone's saying we're taking this stuff seriously. But then when you look at behavior, they're still buying from brands and buying brands that aren't sustainable. So I suppose, how do you see that evolving? So two, two thoughts on that, Martin. It's, yeah. it's, it's the biggest question of all for any consumer facing business. Firstly, this is all about untapped consumer need. So what consumers are saying is, I want a greener product, mm. but I don't want to pay more for it. I don't want to sacrifice on quality and style. I don't want to have to have a PhD to understand it. Yeah. If you can put on the plate in front of me an amazing product that's also brilliant for people and planet, of course I'm going to buy that. In the past, business has been really lazy. You can have the greener product, sir or madam, but only if you pay me twice as much as you would have done. Yeah. And consumers see through that bullshit because what they do is, is turn around and say, why should I pay more for a product that has not exploited people and planet? Yeah. If that's what you give me in the past, you sort that out. Yeah. Now, the last 10 years, business has got away with it because there hasn't been a viable alternative and people have grudgingly said, 
I've got to keep buying the fast fashion and the plant-based, uh, the meat-based diet and the plastics, but I'm really pissed off about it. Suddenly, there is a viable alternative. Mm. The Tesla is a high-performance car. The Allbirds are brilliant trainers, yeah. look stylish, they're yeah. at a good price point. Mm. The, the vegan vegetarian alternative, again, is brilliant, it's interesting, it's different, not what people perceived it in the past. So suddenly people can call the bluff of lazy incumbent businesses and say, I can over here mm-hmm. get what I'm looking for. Greener, healthier, better for planet and people, but it's all positive, aspirational at the right price point. I'm off. Yeah. So any business that sits there lazily in incumbency thinking, I just need to keep out pumping out the same old junk, you're going to go. No, I totally agree. I <clears throat> I get very frustrated with the, you know, a lot of, particularly in, in fashion where a lot of the fast fashion brands commit to sustainability, but they commit to it by... 2025, 2030, 2050, why can't they do it faster? Is that a genuine business issue or or is it just the fact that we're not ready to do it yet, we'll do it in our own time? Is it back to what you were talking about a minute ago? Or? So, so, so two things are holding yeah. people back. What, one is the sense that the, the solutions don't exist to become sustainable. Yes, they do. Yep. For virtually every industrial sector on the planet, there is the solution technically that we need. The challenge is to get it to scale quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's when people are sat there hovering, thinking, do consumers really want this? Yeah. And by the time they wake up to the fact that consumers do, too late, trends left the station. Yeah. So what, what business needs to wake up to is there is a rapid, rapid shift happening out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You need to be on the right side of it. Now, the, one word of qualification here is people are not going to suddenly shift from the old way to the new way mm. overnight. Mm. And I've always th- thought about four different types of consumer in this conversation. There's the 10% who are passionately green already. By and large, they don't participate in mass volume consumption as we know it today. They might be living an organic, a fair trade life. They might be flying a lot less than the average person. Yeah. They're already there. They don't need big businesses' help to be green. They don't really participate with us. The second group, 35% who are light green, really pushing an open door. They're saying, I want an aspirational, positive, exciting lifestyle. I want to be able to get food and clothing that's interesting. Just make it greener. Mm -hmm. That's the group that we can really connect with. Now, the the third group's really interesting. That's another 35% who are utterly driven by locality. Born in Bradford, live in Bradford, die in Bradford. What's anybody doing for Bradford? So before you start telling me you're saving the whole blinking planet and climate change and everything else, Mm. tell me what you're doing for my town. Mm -hmm. And again, you could be a little, talk a little bit about Trump and Brexit in, in, in that mashup as well. But the heart business needs to be relevant to people's everyday lives mm. as well as on a planetary scale. And that's where retailers in the particular who are grounded in communities have a real opportunity. Mm. So some brands, these new new platforms that have merged float above the planet, you know, not quite paying the taxes in any particular locality. What traditional retailers have as an, a problem, all those shops, an opportunity, all those shops and presence in people's everyday lives. Now, yeah. there's 20% also that are not concerned about these issues, the poorest sections of any society. Mm. And by and large, they're not going to come with us. But 80% of society is waiting at, in some shape or form for a dramatic shift. Mm. 80% of people we can work not with. ready for that, it. Yeah. What opportunities are there for consumers to more accurately or more pers- be able to measure their own personal carbon footprint? Because I think that becomes a driver, I would imagine, of the change of behaviour. You know, If you're aware of the cause and effect of what you buy, what you consume, how you travel, and the implications of that, and you're able to measure that in a meaningful way on a kind of daily basis, do you not think that would start to change behaviour? And absolutely. And I, I look back to the, bro- the brave work that Tesco's back did in 2007. Mm-hmm. And Tesco's committed to put a carbon level on every product 
product they sold. Mm -hmm. Tens of thousands of products. Mm -hmm. It was bold, it was brave, but it was probably before its time. It was too early. Too early. The science wasn't accurate enough. The cost was too too astronomic with spreadsheets rather than AI and big data that we have today. Consumers just weren't ready for it. If you look where we are today, the ability to start to label individual products is starting to emerge at mm-hmm. the right um, price point for the retailer to mm-hmm. do in a way that's, you know, the app, the mobile phone is much more accessible for people. Mm-hmm. Do I think every person's going to use it every day w- rushing around the shop in five minutes flat? No, they're not. Mm-hmm. But enough people will start to use it to guide their judgments and their decisions mm-hmm. that it will start to make a difference. Now, for now, it's probably about a category decision. Do I buy meat or plant-based? Yeah. Within the meat offer or within the plant-based offer, people are not doing that granular separation of 200 dif- different SKUs out there. Will that come? Might do. Might do. But yeah. I still think for most people, they'll make a decision at a broad level. Yeah. Not just at a brand level, but a broad level to say, I want to be on this in this aisle, not this one. Yeah. Typical supermarkets, I mean, I, and this is a rough estimate from Mike, but I would reckon that something like a Walmart's got over a million different SKUs around the world. Mm-hmm. Their ability to come up with a detailed, detailed social environmental footprint for each one and then the consumer to look at each one is challenging. Mm. But we'll get to a halfway house and people are starting to innovate in this space. I'm working with a, a little startup called Kogo that started to link your monthly expenditure with issues that really matter to you. So if you mm. care about living wage, mm. you put it on the, uh, on the app. If, through open banking protocols, it follows what you're doing. And it enables you to say, at the end of the month, I paid spent 14% of my wallet this month with a living wage um, employer. Right. Here's opportunities by substituting next month in your yeah. basket to get to 20%, 30%. Yeah. They're the simple nudge tools that people need to move things forward. Yeah. You talked earlier about, or you mentioned Plant Kitchen, which is a range of, um, obviously, plant-based food skews, um, which I know M&S are doing particularly well with. I believe they brought in something like half a million new customers off the back of it. Um, sounds like an opportunity to actually introduce that you know set of customers to the broader M&S proposition, or does it? Will you tell me? What do you think? So, uh, absolutely. What what happened with Plant Kitchen? MS have been tracking for a few years with Plan A yeah. this shift and this concern about a, a meat based diet. Now, MS works with 20,000 farmers around the world, mm-hmm. you know, several thousand of which produce meat. They're good farmers working mm-hmm. really hard. And I still fundamentally believe that there is a place for meat in the diet going forward. Mm-hmm. It has to be profoundly different from today's production standards. But I believe good farmers working with the land to lock up carbon in the soil through a, a, a meat based diet. Great future there, but they have to work hard on it. So what M&S saw about um, 12, 18 months ago was this shift of consumer sentiment that said, yeah, we've been reading about this sort of plant vegan um, options. Sounds a little intimidating, a little bit difficult. I'd like to try it. Can you M&S make it accessible for me? That's what mm. you're really good at. Yeah. And the M&S product development team did an amazing job. 60 SKUs developed in the space of just a few months and launched um, – little over a year ago now, hugely successful. And they say it's brought a new customer into the, the M&S um, ecosystem mm-hmm. who you can then start to show the wider M&S offer to. Mm-hmm. So M&S became relevant to a new customer base. Yeah. And that's one of its great challenges for the 21st century, for the next decade. Yeah. Now, it's got it for its laundry business. To a degree, it's got it for its food business. But bringing those new customers in and showing that M&S was relevant to a modern lifestyle, modern diet, very, very important. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a great range of products. I do I do think there's an opportunity to probably do more 
with it in the physical environment, you know, whether that's introducing, you know, video and maybe having some, you know, chefs in. And I think because one, one of the things that I think you perceive when you don't eat plant-based food, I mean, I'm not exclusively plant-based, but I have moved my diet probably more towards that. So I probably, I, I don't know, roughly 18, 85% of my diet now is plant-based. And actually, they're very flavoursome, you know, deliciously, Ella, shout out for her. <clears throat> my wife, uh, you know, cooks a number of, takes a number of her recipes every week mm. and serves up, you know, really delicious plant-based uh, dinners for myself and uh, my family. And I think it's fantastic. But I wonder if there's maybe an opportunity to, as I say, to bring it a bit more to life, because I would imagine there's a, a quite a strong educational piece required still to bring people like me on that journey who previously thought that, you know, plant-based would be boring, wouldn't be that tasty and, you know, therefore wouldn't wouldn't switch from, you know, more traditional diets. Yeah, and if you look at the, the sort of new experimental M&S food halls now Stuart Merchant's brought in, uh-huh. you really see a desire to tell the story behind the product. Yeah. You see the refill stations, and again, other, other retailers like Waitrose are doing a good job as well, starting to encourage people away from the plastic um, packaging. So you can start to see a food offer that looks delicious in the food hall, but also has a positive educational piece behind it, not in a worthy, dull, 20th century way, but in an exciting, aspirational way. Yeah. But I don't want to walk away from the fact that there's also a very positive story that farmers can tell about a meat-based diet. Mm-hmm. But they need to learn from what's happened with the plant-based diet. Plant-based has been very aspirational, very positive, very with the momentum of the future. Meat farmers now need to seize upon that opportunity, turn the back on the very worst excesses and very worst practices of many parts of the global food industry, and I stress the word global, and for UK meat to differentiate itself as a positive part of the diet as well. I'm very similar to you in terms of flexitarianism. I've reduced dramatically the amount of meat that's in my diet, but there's still some, Mm. and I want to make sure that that treat that is meat that I have once a week, once a month, is produced to very, very high standards. Mm. And I think meat farmers who can produce, differentiate in that way, have got a good future. How do the, how do the, how do the farmers cope with the whole methane issue? So, so for many farmers who are already producing meat, there's, yeah. there's, there's several factors you've got to think about. One is the animal feed. So for some farmers using a very soya-based diet for the animals right. to feed them, yeah. a lot of that's coming from deforestation in the Amazon. That mm. needs to be pushed out of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. We need an alternative to that going forward. Then when it comes to farming practice itself, you know, ensuring that you're storing the slurries and not letting off um, you know, the methane during production, yeah. you turn it into renewable energy. Soil management is so important. You know, we, we tend to think about soil as boring. Soil underpins the whole global food system that supports 7.6 billion people on this planet. Good soil management that can shift the average soil content of soils from 1% to 3% could lock up tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of tonnes of carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So if we can work with farmers to ensure that they're using the very best practice in terms of soil management, we've got a real positive pathway forward. So people forget, we we talk about point source and carbon, power stations and cars, absolutely important we deal with. But getting on top of land use change, protecting mm. forests, regrowing forests, protecting soil, crucial. And farmers are the custodians of that land. Mm. They can play such an important role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Just going, uh, seg- segueing on to what you were talking there about, uh, for example, cars and power stations. There's there's a degree of cynicism, isn't there, with pe- with a lot of people when it comes to, 
you know, social responsibility without getting political about it. But there are, you know, there is a lot of cynicism around with regards to the true implications. And, you know, you'll hear the counter-argument when somebody talks about, for example, the the positive impacts of an electric vehicle like a Tesla versus the um, the carbon impact, Im- impact of the batteries and charging of the batteries and everything. How do you, what would you say to people that have that sort of cynicism about whether it's actually the right path to go down? So, so two, two thoughts on that, Martin. Mm-hmm. One is, first and profoundly, climate crisis is happening now. Yep. So let's be clear that we need a pathway to a different future. The pathway we pick, it can be complicated, which we'll touch on in a minute, but really clear, the science of climate crisis, as we've seen with the Australian wildfires, the Californian wildfires, the heat that we've had here in the UK this winter, mm. unprecedented. And it's going to impact our lives, not just in terms of human misery, economic loss and human life. It's going to dramatically change the world and we need to get on top of the climate yeah. crisis. Now, there are multiple pathways forward to actually solve that. And that's where we can have a good, rich debate. There's a lot of um, pushback about electric cars, which is just plain wrong. The science says that an electric car, absolutely better than a conventional diesel or petrol-based car. Mm-hmm. The big challenge we've got is twofold. One is rolling out a charging infrastructure that people can use in a meaningful way. Now, for the, for the number of people in the UK that have a drive that they can charge an electric car on in the evening, brilliant. You've got your own petrol pumping effect at home. So, I mean, that works very, very well. Sure. For people who have to park the car out on, on the road in the evening, much harder. And we have to think very, very carefully about supporting people with the transition from the yeah. petrol pump to, to charging. Of course, the electric industry has new impacts. So everybody's sort of mining that lithium, that cobalt, you know, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, huge human rights abuses. And the industry absolutely needs to get on top of that supply chain management. It's not been good enough yet. And then what do you do with all those batteries when people are finished with them? Mm. Now, version 1.0 of, of, that, of, of the shift to electric batteries has left a bit of a problem. People are starting to use the old car batteries in terms of battery storage for renewable, intermittent wind and solar. Fantastic. But there has to be a more sophisticated version of that again. So every revolution brings a challenge. It brings new impacts. But we have to be clear, we have to do this. The climate crisis is so big, it's so compelling, we need new ways forward. Equally, the environmental movement shouldn't be so arrogant that, that it doesn't understand that other secondary pro- problems will emerge with the shift. So whether it's charging or whether it's what we do with the batteries, face into that and deal with it. But we must act. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Um, let's go back to retail for a second. Um, there, there are lots of different elements that retailers need to deal with when it comes to sustainability. You know, how, how do you how do they overcome some of the barriers and, and, and maybe how do they prioritise what they could change? Yeah. So, so the, the, if I remember back my M&S days, the single biggest challenge was always scale. So yeah. Marks & Spencer was not a big global retailer, selling 3 billion items to 32 million people from 1,000 shops, websites, Produced at thousands of factories, tens of thousands of farms, and thousands of raw material sources, two million people in the supply chain. And there are people 25 times bigger than MS on this planet, so just multiply through those numbers. Mm. So the sheer number of touch points in a running that ecosystem made it really hard to change everything. Mm. So let's start. That's, that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is very much then it's a really competitive marketplace. So how do you start to do all these quite difficult changes now when some people are doing none of it, freeloading in effect on, mm. the, on the side of the economy, on the surface doing very, very well, while you're sinking effort into preparing for a different future. Now, the key thing there is to de-risk change, build partnerships. And again, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, 
the Consumer Goods Forum brought the world's biggest food and drink companies together, the biggest competitors. Perhaps in Coke, Walmart, Tesco's, Nestle, Unilever, they don't particularly like each other. Yeah. But they had to get in a room and work together on things like palm oil, soya, um, deforestation and human rights, plastics as well. Unless you get that level of participation by the whole marketplace, nothing will ever sh- change because people will be looking over the shoulders thinking, yeah, but they're not moving, so I'm not going to move too much. So that's the, the, the second thing. And the third thing then has always been this consumer challenge. Do they really want it or not? And I think we're all beginning to wake up very rapidly to the fact that people do want it, untapped consumer need. There's just a good and a bad way of providing for them. But if you don't, somebody else will. Mm. So they're the three great challenges for me. One is about um, the sheer number of things you've got changed. Yep. Second is partnership. Third is about taking the consumer on the journey with you. Yeah, very good. Um, I, I suppose, like anything, there will be there will be some low hanging fruit. There will be, despite the the, the challenges, particularly in a, a larger organisation of driving any change or transformation. Presumably, in any business, there's an opportunity to to start doing something. Whether that's even encouraging, you know, all the employees in the organisation to start being more sustainable, both in the work environment and in their personal lives. Yeah, and and, and again, I just draw a couple of examples from the MS world. Plan A wasn't just a sustainability plan. It was a cultural transformation plan yeah. for MS. So yeah. what, what were MS's great culture challenges 15, 20 years ago? One was getting the business to look outwards. So what Plan A did, it forced MS to look outwards and said, there is a wider world that we participate in, our customers live in, that we mm. need to be more engaged with. Great. Mm-hmm. Second, that MS at the time was quite siloed. You know, there was a food business, clothing business, a retail business. Never the twain did talk enough together. Yeah. What Plan A did, it drove that horizontal linkage across the organisation. Third, M&S at the time was quite risk-averse. You know, it's bold and brave. Now, we talk about Plant Kitchen. We talk about mm. the relationship with Ocado. Now, doing some big transformational things. But at the time, when it launched Plan A, quite risk-averse. Yeah. Of all the things that happened in the last 10, 15 years that M&S committed to, probably Plan A at the time was the most transformational. It was one of the few things where M&S set the direction of travel for the global retail sector as it had in the 20th century. Mm. So I, I think M Plan A helped on, enormously in terms of transformation of the culture of the organisation for 83,000 colleagues and all the good people in the supply chain. Yeah. The businesses that can embrace it in the next decade going forward, this purpose-led workforce, and again, you'll hear Paul Polman in his time at Unilever talk about it a lot. Yeah. If you want to be attracting the brightest and the best to be working with you in the future, of course you need a good career, a good salary, exciting job, opportunities to progress. But you want to be working for a business that's got a heart, a soul, and is oh, doing the right thing. More. Purpose is the heart couldn't of employment more. in the future. Yeah, I mean, I it sounds a bit flippant, but I, I use the line purpose before profit, and I, and I really do. I think if you if that's your if that's your focus and that's your sort of cultural value, you end up obviously delivering a lot more at the end of it because you're a purpose led business. Yeah. If you start with profit, you make a lot of the wrong decisions. But also that just reminds us, Martin, that, you know, we had in the past greenwash and now you're getting purpose wash. Yeah. And it's really easy to sniff out where people are just doing it on the surface. Sure. And again, I, I used the example a moment ago of, of Unilever. People don't understand of how much change Paul Polman wrought across that big, complex global organisation at Unilever yeah. to really get every nook and cranny to do purpose properly. Yeah. And now Alan Job's take, picked up the baton and running with it as well you underestimate at your peril how much effort you have to put in as leadership team to drive true purpose into your organisation. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And that's a perfect segue into the the commercial sort of part of the business because, and we have touched on this already, but presumably from what you've said, like me, you see a direct correlation between businesses that are socially socially responsible and their commercial performance. 
Absolutely. And I think Plan A always had a business case at the heart of it. I mean, yeah. version 1.0 of the pl- business case was efficiency, drive out waste, drive out plastic use, drive out packaging, carrier bags. Cumulatively saved M&S over 750 million quid over 10 years, mm-hmm. the first 10 years of Plan A. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. You know, for a business facing a lot of challenge and difficulty, yep. that's very valuable money. So efficiency first. Second, we talked about 83,000 M&S colleagues, giving them a, a, a spring in the step because they work for a good business that was different, they could feel proud about. Again, help them drive through that transformation, give great service to the customer in a difficult marketplace. Third thing is supply chain resilience. And again, I would step out the, the, the M&S office and back into the global supply chains and see all across the world the impact of extreme weather events on availability of product, on quality of product, on the price point of, that you're buying. And M&S prepared itself for some of the big shifts, whether it's sourcing from Kenya or East Anglia. M&S was working with its suppliers a decade ago to prepare for a world where there was either let too little water or too much. Um, and that put it in, in, in a good place. So all around it, M&S was starting to build a business case. The next decade is that business case we just talked about, Plant Kitchen. Mm. It is your business. And if you don't sell this product, somebody will buy it from somewhere else. And you will not be relevant and will not be about. Absolutely. So this is absolutely a business case-driven approach to sustainability. 100%. For me, it's it's just it's the same. Well, for me, being socially responsible is part of being a truly customer-centric business. It's one of the key building blocks. Um, And... Um, I do find it astonishing that in tw- here we are in 2020 and there's still a number of boards around the UK who don't get the value of being customer centric, don't really see the value of, you know, being social responsible, see it as a cost rather than a benefit. Um, and not only is that, in my mind, very blinkered and very sort of short term focused, but clearly to your point about the future, not only of the planet, but the future of a, a business, if it's going to be truly sustainable in the future, um, it has to take this stuff seriously. And, and to your point earlier, you know, unfortunately, in the next 10 years, there'll be probably half of the businesses that we see today in the consumer sector won't be there. And, and this will be probably one of the major reasons why, why unfortunately, they, they fall by the way. Uh, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, an education for me. Uh, Mike, I'm so grateful to you for spending time with me and our audience today talking about everything to do with social responsibility, the environment, and, and all the great experience and knowledge that you bring. Um, I'm sure lots of businesses are going to benefit from your expertise um, that you've uh, built up over the last 20-odd years. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, absolute pleasure, Martin. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Um, so thanks to Mike, and thanks to all of you for listening to Consumer Focus with me, Martin Newman, and my guest, Mike Barry. I hope you'll join me next time to discuss the latest in consumer concerns. Thank you very much. <laughs>